We are continuing with our sermon on God's ever triumphant reign. So this is part two and the concluding part of our sermon which we began last weekend. So allow me to read Psalm 2 once again and may I request everybody to please rise from their seats as we honor God's word and together recite aloud Psalm 2. Let's begin with verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and you shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence, and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry, and you perish in the wave. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Shall we bow our heads in prayer? At this time our Heavenly Father we thank you and bless you you are our Heavenly Father but not only our Heavenly Father you are our Heavenly King and we thank you dear Lord that through your Son Jesus Christ we have now become not only your subjects but we have become your sons and your daughters, co-heirs with our Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, what can we say? We are truly indebted to you with an eternal gratitude. For Lord, if you had allowed us to live our lives according to our own desires, we would not have found you. But through your electing grace and through the working and conviction of the Holy Spirit, here we are, your children. And so we praise you and thank you, Lord, for allowing this to happen, for making sure the eternal life that you have granted to us. And for this, Lord, we want to revere you we want to worship you, and we want to learn from you, O God. We pray, O Lord, that you might grant us future vision. And we pray, Lord, that you might illumine our minds and our hearts with your word as we ask for the blessing and anointing of your Holy Spirit. I pray for myself, O God, that even as a weak vessel, Lord, you might use me powerfully and mightily for your glory. I pray, Lord, that you might minister to your people and even bring about a harvest of souls. Let not your word return to you null and void, but may it accomplish the very purpose by which you have sent it for. And Lord, whatever is going to be achieved today, we will give you back the glory, the praises, and the thanks in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen and amen. Now, nations have been greatly humbled by this coronavirus, making us realize that we cannot defy, we cannot rebel, we cannot reject the rulership of God over our nations and over our 
individual lives. If we were to find a safe place for ourselves as well as for our nations, it would be at the center of God's will in submission to God, embracing His will in our lives and being safe in His loving hands. I'd like to read to you Psalm 33 and verse 12. And it says here, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people He has chosen as His own inheritance. Once again, the Bible says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And this is my prayer, that our nation and even other nations will have God as their Lord. For when this happens, then we will truly be blessed because we are safe in the loving hands of God. I'd like to quote to you two well-known gentlemen in history. One is George Washington, the first president of the United States. And this is what he said, and I quote, it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey His will, to be grateful for His benefits, and humbly to implore His protection and favor. Another well-known gentleman, the President of the United States of America as well, Abraham Lincoln, said this, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. Nations that rebel against God have put themselves on the side of crushing defeat as well as judgment. On the other hand, if God's rulership through His Son Jesus Christ is embraced by us and embraced by our nation, then great blessings are expected. And so I'd like to review to you the outline for this Psalm, Psalm 2. And as you very well know, we have completed uh, major points 1 and 2. And so what we will tackle today would be points 3 and 4. But first, a review. First major point is the rebellion of nations and kings in verses 1 to 3. In verse 1, we find the rebellion of nations and their evil plans. In verses 2 to 3, we find the rebellion of kings and their worthless declaration of independence. Major point number two is the response of God the Father in verses 4 to 6. In verse 4, we find His mindset. And then in verses 5 to 6, His powerful declaration. And so we had completed parts 1 and 2 of our study. And today, we are now going to look into parts 3 and 4 or points 3 and 4. So in verses 7 to 9, we find the response of God the Son. In verse 7, we find the Son's proclamation of the Father's mission for Him. In verse 8, the reward of the Father. In verse 9, the judgment of nations and kings by the Son. Our last major point is the call of the Father to repentance in verses 10 to 12. In verse 10, discern and heed. In verse 11, worship and exalt in the Lord. Verse 12, worship the Son who is the judge. And then, the blessedness of repentance and submission to Christ in the same verse. So we're now ready to dive into our final two points today. And we will have a look at the third major point, the response of God's Son verses 7 to 9, and we begin with verse 7, the Son's proclamation of the Father's mission for Him. 
Verse 7 reads, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now herein we find that God the Father says and declares, you are my son. And we are here to find out who this son is. But first of all, let us determine what does the word son mean here. Normally, in the Old Testament, we find that the word son is a designation either to Israel or to his kings like David. But likewise, the word son is used as well as a messianic title. And I believe based on the context of Psalm 2, it is very important for us to understand that this is a messianic title referring in fact to the lord jesus christ himself now this messianic title was affirmed by god the father at the baptism of the lord jesus christ signifying to us that jesus was destined to be king not only king of israel but king of the whole world and king of the spiritual realm which we call the church. But first, let's have a look at this particular title that the Lord God the Father designated to Jesus Christ at the baptism. Matthew 3, verse 16 reads, After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him and behold a voice out of the heaven said and i'd like you to listen well to this this is my beloved son in whom i am well pleased herein we find the witness of god the father that jesus christ indeed is the son that is mentioned in psalm 2 jesus christ is the messiah of god the father and so here we have the testimony of heaven and the testimony of god the father together with the testimony of the holy spirit as the holy spirit through the symbolism of a dove alighted on the lord jesus christ so clearly in psalm 2 we are talking about the lord jesus christ now, when did this happen? When did this declaration happen? When God the Father said in verse 7, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Now this happened, of course, at the incarnation. When God the Father sent his son on a mission to save the world. So again, let me just repeat. The first mission of the king is to bring salvation to the world. And we find this in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 16, which I would like to read to you. It says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he had not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God or the Messiah. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light. For their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Now during the time of the Lord Jesus Christ, there was great messianic anticipation. And I believe that there was a great messianic anticipation because of the oppression that many of the Jews were experiencing at that time because 
they were under the oppressive Roman Empire. They were heavily taxed, and as a result of that, many of them were in great poverty. Of course, it was not truly a pleasant thing to be under the rulership of foreigners. They were in their own land, but they were being ruled by foreigners. They were being ruled by the harsh and oppressive Roman Empire. I believe this was one of the reasons why there was a heightened messianic anticipation. However, majority of the Jews expected not a spiritual deliverance, but a political deliverance. A deliverance from the rule of the Roman Empire. What they had hoped was that when the Messiah would come, the Messiah would crush the oppressive Roman Empire and set up his rulership in Jerusalem and over the whole of the nation of Israel. It was likewise expected that the Messiah would not only rule from Israel, but he would likewise rule all over the world as prophesied among the Old Testament major and minor prophets. This was the expectation that they had. Unfortunately, they failed to realize that the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the kingdom of the Messiah, was first of all a spiritual one before it was a physical, literal, and visible kingdom. Having said that, I'd like to be able to say to you that the manifestation, the ultimate manifestation of the kingdom of God is literal, visible, and physical in what is called as the millennial kingdom or the Davidic kingdom. And this is what we expect to happen in the distant future. And why do we expect that? Because it has been prophesied already both in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. So this is something that we are looking forward to. A new world. A world that is ruled and governed by the Lord Jesus Christ. A world wherein the only religion, wherein the only faith is the Christian faith. Wherein people worship only one God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That one God in this blessed trinity. That, however, is reserved for the future. During the time of Jesus Christ, when he was doing public ministry, his mission was first of all spiritual. It was to save the world. Unfortunately, majority of the people of Israel were not prepared for that spiritual kingdom because that kingdom required repentance. That kingdom required that they might surrender their entire lives to the rulership of Jesus Christ. And that is why, unfortunately, majority of the Jews rejected Jesus Christ, except for a godly remnant. And so we find the 12 apostles. We also find the 120 in the upper room who had made their commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ the 3,000 who were saved later on. And according to many church historians, the number may have reached about 100,000 Jews who had received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And this came under the pastorate of James, who happens to be the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then again, only a minority, only a remnant of Jews accepted Christ as Lord and Savior. This message of salvation, however, is something that is continually trumpeted by the Lord's servants. So again, just to review what had happened during that time, it says here in verse 19 and 20, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. 
For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Unfortunately, that is the sad state of majority of people in the world. But the message of Christ is still the same. The message of God the Father is still the same. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. This was the mission of the Son. This was the mission of the Messiah. And this is the mission of the Son up until today. And he is using the church of Jesus Christ to be able to trumpet and herald this message. And my prayer, of course, is that many still would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. In verse 8, we find the reward of the Father to the Son because of His willingness to be the Messiah. It says in verse 8, Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Now, every son inherits something from his father. That is, of course, if the father has certain possessions to leave behind. In the case of God the Son, in the case of Jesus Christ, the inheritance that was given to him by the father were the nations or are the nations. It says here, I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Because of Jesus' victory over sin and death as uh, seen in his resurrection, the Lord Jesus Christ has been given all authority over everything and his victory is to be declared over all the nations. Jesus' kingdom has broken into this world and in the distant future, his kingdom will be manifested in a world dominion that encompasses the rest of the world. Now, as I mentioned to you, the church is God's mighty army. We are the mighty army of the king declaring his victory from nation to nation. In Matthew 28, Verses 18 to 20, it says, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So in this dispensation, Jesus makes his offer of salvation to it, the entire world. He is offering himself as a savior. And as I mentioned to you, we, the church of Jesus Christ, have been tasked by God to spread the message of the gospel. And at this juncture, I would like to pause and ask my fellow brothers and sisters, have we been fulfilling this task that God has given to us? That we are to go and make disciples of all nations. Are we going out and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ? In this particular passage, if we examine the Greek, the going here is supposed to be something that is spontaneous. Something that is natural for believers of Christ to do because of their deep gratitude towards what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. And I made mention of the fact to you that the Lord Jesus Christ has suffered greatly for our sins. And in gratitude towards what he has done, not only are we to offer our sacrifice of praise, but we are to serve him by sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as I mentioned to you, in the Greek, 
This was something that was supposed to be spontaneous, something that was supposed to be natural, something that was normal for every believer to do. But unfortunately, we find that majority of those who are believers in Christ are merely sitting in the pews. They have become mere spectators and they have not shared the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now we have been given this task by God. We have been given this opportunity by the Lord to partner with Him in spreading the gospel not only to our nation but to other nations as well. And when you and I do that and as people embrace the Lordship of Jesus Christ into their lives, they will be part of this new world that I mentioned to you, this world which we call the Davidic Kingdom or the Millennial Kingdom. That is our participation. Our participation is to populate that new world with believers in Christ. And I hope and pray that we are doing our own part. Not only sharing the gospel, but discipling other believers, equipping them. So that as we are able to equip them, they too might grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. They might do the work of evangelism. And they might also disciple and cause others to grow into spiritual maturity. Again, we are thankful to God for the opportunity to participate with the work of the Son who was given the inheritance of all these nations. And that is why the Lord is bidding us to go and to fulfill the task that He has given to His church. And so, again, what the Lord is offering is His salvation to the world today. A time, however, is going to come when the Lord Jesus Christ will function as a judging king. And that will happen, of course, at his second coming. He will become the Lion of Judah during that time. And this is something that we will study in the next uh, verse, in verse 9, as we have a look at the judgment of nations and kings by the Son. In verse 9, it reads, You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, what does this verse mean when it says, You shall break them with a rod of iron? The rod here speaks about the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ, His rulership. In contrast here, nations will be just like broken pottery. Now, what is the timeline of this? Allow me just to give you a short review of God's timeline. Of course, we are right now in what is called as the dispensation of the church. And in this dispensation, we are to go out, make disciples, we are to evangelize, we are to cause the church to be established. I'd like to be able to say, however, that the dispensation of the church will not continue it will end and the question is when will the dispensation of the church end the dispensation of the church will end in an event which is called as the rapture in the rapture the church will be caught up in the clouds with the lord jesus christ to be with him for all eternity and so all believers in Christ, all genuine believers in Christ at the time of the rapture will disappear. Now right after the event of the rapture, we have the event which is called as the tribulation period. Now in the tribulation period, we're talking about seven years of great difficulty, not only for one nation, but for all the nations all over the world. Now, the tribulation period serves two purposes. One is that it will be a time of judgment upon all the nations. We see so much wickedness, so much perversion, so much abnormality in the world today. And we're wondering, is God not going to judge 
the nations that have rebelled against him. And my answer to you is he will judge the nations. And the timing of that judgment will happen in the tribulation period. The second purpose, however, of the tribulation period is to make his people, I'm talking about the Jews, is to make his people return to him. And that is what is going to happen. The tribulation period in the Old Testament is otherwise known as Jacob's trouble. And why is it called Jacob's trouble? Because it is a time of God's dealing for the nation of Israel. And indeed, many of them would repent and accept their Messiah. We are told that one-third of the Jews would receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and 144,000 Jews would be used by God as evangelists who will evangelize the whole world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what will happen is that God's favor would be upon the nation of Israel once again through this spiritual revival. And the result of that is not only a harvest among the Jews, but a harvest upon the whole world. Many people will turn and uh, receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. It will be a difficult time, however, because there will be calamities, there will be plagues, there will be pestilence, there will be uh, cosmic cataclysms, meteor showers, uh, water will be affected, natural resources will be affected, there will be inflation, there will be famine, there will be poverty. The world will experience great tribulation that it has never ever experienced in its entire history. And so compared uh, to this pandemic crisis, this pandemic crisis will be nothing in comparison to what the world will suffer at that time. The suffering of the world, however, will end in the second coming of Jesus Christ. That is why the tribulation period is going to be only seven years. In the second coming of Jesus Christ, he will land in the Mount of Olives. And he will now establish his kingdom from Jerusalem. And from that time on, he will rule the whole world for 1,000 years until there comes a final rebellion. After that final rebellion, however, the whole timeline would now be swallowed up in the rest of eternity in what we call as the new heavens and the new earth. And so let me just share to you what will happen at the end of that 1,000 years and how Jesus Christ will show his rod of iron shattering nations like earthenware. We find our text in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 6. It says, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. The Bible says that these people who will be resurrected will reign together with Christ. Now, obviously, we're talking here about some of the Old Testament saints and some of the tribulation saints who had been martyred. But aside from them, it's also talking about the church. We, the church of Jesus Christ, will rule and reign together with the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll talk more about that, but let's continue on and follow through with our text. Let's read verse 7. It says, When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. In fact, uh, what you need to know is that he will be bound at the beginning of the second coming and the reign of Jesus Christ in the millennium. But it says here, After a thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. Now this is not 
the battle of Armageddon. The battle of Armageddon happens before the second coming. But in this particular case, Jesus Christ is found on earth. He is already ruling and reigning as King of kings and Lord of lords. And during that time, the tribulation saints would populate the entire earth at the beginning of the second coming, they would populate the entire earth and many of their children, of course, would receive Christ as Lord and Savior, but not all of them. So not all of those children of these tribulation saints would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. However, they would feign their obedience because at that time, Jesus will be ruling with a rod of iron. Any disobedience, any transgression would be met with instant death. And that is why majority of the people would obey God, but some of that obedience would be feigned obedience. It would not be genuine. And so one of the purposes why Satan is going to be released after 1,000 years is to expose the hearts of people. And so when Satan is released, those who are genuinely worshiping and serving God, those who are genuinely, uh, those who have a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ will be revealed. But those who are feigning obedience, those who are not genuine believers will likewise be exposed and Satan will instigate and inspire them to rebellion. And that is what is going to happen. There will be a final rebellion taking place. And so what's going to happen? It says here in verse 9 and 10, And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. This is talking about Jerusalem. And the fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Now this war is going to end very quickly because God's judgment would be fire coming down from heaven and consuming all of these rebels. Verse 10 reads, And the devil who deceived them will be thrown. I'm sorry, maybe I should read verse 9 once again. It says, And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So this final rebellion will be quelled. It will be destroyed. It will be crushed. And what we will have is the new heavens and the new earth. And from that time on, the creation, God's wonderful creation, will no longer be disturbed by any other rebellion. This would be the final rebellion. Now, I know that some of the things that I spoke to you are probably highfalutin. Maybe I'm shooting some people above their heads because I'm talking about what is called as a discipline study, eschatology. Eschatology is... The doctrine of the last days. And I'm talking about the last days here. What will happen in the future? And some of you might be very pragmatic and you might be asking me the question, why am I talking about future things? Well, friends, let me tell you the reason why I'm talking about future things. Because if you are a believer in Christ, you are a person of the future. Our destiny is bright, it is great, it is mighty, and all of that, all of that inheritance that God is going to give his people is reserved for the future. And I think I will be doing a disservice to God's people if I do not talk about the things that are, that are laid out for them, this wonderful, beautiful inheritance for the future. That is why I keep on mentioning that we are to be a people of a future vision. We have to have this future vision. Many believers in Christ, unfortunately, 
are so earthbound. The vision that they have is merely upon this life here on earth. But we are to extend our vision to the future. Because that, after all, is what eternity is all about. We're talking about life everlasting. Now, sadly, a lot of people talk about eternal life. And the only thing they can think about when they think of eternal life is life without end. And you see, if it's just life without end, then it's going to be a boring existence. But no, friends, eternal life is not just about life without end. It is life receiving all that God has in store for his children. I tell you, it is truly mind-blowing. Many of the things that I speak about when I talk about or teach about future things, many of these things sound so incredible. And they are incredible because after all, we have an incredible God. We have a glorious God, a God who created this world that you and I are living in. And you need to remind yourselves that this world that we are living in has been cursed by God because of the sin of Adam and Eve. And yet this world that we see right now, the earth with all its natural resources and natural beauty is still beautiful in spite of the fact that it is cursed. Now try to imagine a world without the curse of God. Try to imagine a world that is perfect. Try to imagine a world wherein God is the architect and builder of that city and of that world. It is going to be beyond our wildest imagination. It is going to be a world that is perfect, a world wherein we no longer see the curse that we find all throughout. It is going to be a world that is uh, booming and bursting with so much beauty coming from our great and mighty creator. That is why what a bright future you and I have. And I take pains in explaining all of these things. And sometimes it's really difficult just to be able to explain all these things because they all sound so incredible. But then again, they are found in scriptures. And let me remind you, Jesus fulfilled everything about his first coming. Every prophecy relating to his first coming was fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ, literally. It was prophesied in the Bible that he would be born in Bethlehem. And in Bethlehem, he was born. It was prophesied in the Bible that he would die. And that, uh, that he would be resurrected once again. That was fulfilled as well. It was also prophesied that he would be betrayed by a friend. That happened in the case of Judah. So everything about the first coming of Jesus Christ was fulfilled. That is why I believe with all my heart that things relating to his second coming would likewise be fulfilled. I have absolutely no doubt that he is going to fulfill that. Now I know that as some people are listening to me right now, they might be laughing and they might be mocking at this message and saying, what are you talking about? Those things are impossible. Those things are too incredible. They will never ever happen. And you know what? I pity the people who are laughing and mocking this message. Because in the end, the Bible says that the Lord in the heavens laughs and scoffs at them. In the end, God will have the last laugh. And those who are believers together with him will have the last laugh as well. Notice that Jesus likewise gives this authority to believers as well. And I'd like to read Revelation chapter 2, 26 and 27. And those of you who are children of God, listen well to what the Bible has to say. It says, He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him... I will give authority over 
the nations. Did you hear that? The Bible says to him who overcomes. And, and who are those who overcome? John the Beloved, by the way, was the one who wrote the book of Revelation. And so we need to be able to uh, have a look at the other writings of John the Beloved to see and determine his writing pattern, his language pattern. And what does he say in 1 John? He who overcomes is born of God. In other words, the overcomer that is being mentioned here in Revelation chapter 2, 26 is the believer in Christ. And what is the inheritance that God has given to you? It says here, I will give authority over the nations. I know this is so hard to believe. But brothers and sisters, the Bible says you will have authority over the nations. What do you think that means? It means that you will be a king. That is why the title of Jesus Christ is King of Kings. Now who are the other kings? You and I happen to be those kings. Now of course as we look at ourselves and somehow muse on our insignificance, it is so hard to imagine that one day you and I are going to be kings. It is so hard for you and I to imagine that you and I would rule nations. But this is the bright and wonderful inheritance that God will grant and give to those who believe in Him. So it's not just about life without end that we are talking about here. It is rendering service unto the Lord for the rest of eternity. It is praising and worshiping God for the rest of eternity. But not only that, ruling and reigning together with Christ for the rest of eternity. That is simply mind-blowing. It is so difficult to imagine ourselves in that world. It is difficult to imagine that world that is being prophesied in the scriptures. But I tell you, our God is not a liar. And whatever He has predicted, whatever He has prophesied, whatever He has written, it is as good as done. It is as good as done. It is as good as completed. It will happen. It will take place. And when I muse and meditate and ponder on the great inheritance that God has given to me as His own child. I cannot help but be deeply indebted to Him. And that is why I continually proclaim the Word of God and spread the Gospel. I have been faithful to the task that God has given to me as a herald and as a minister of God. And I ask you this question, have you been faithful to the message that God has given to us as a stewardship. Have you been preaching the gospel? Have you been discipling other believers? Because dear brethren, God has so much in store for us. He will reward us greatly, although we are undeserving sinners. Yet sometimes our earthly existence has become worthless because we are focusing and fixing our eyes on things here on earth. And we are not investing in heaven. We are not investing in the next life. And that is why I labor hard to teach people about things that belong to the future because that, my dear brothers and sisters, is our destiny. And I pray to God that that as we are given a sneak preview into the future, you and I would be inspired. You and I would be motivated. You and I would be encouraged to go through this life, albeit with all the sufferings and trials. May we go through this life victoriously, not becoming victims, but people of God triumphant. Because we know what is in store for us. So let us march on, dear soldiers of Jesus Christ. And let us follow the bidding of our master. Do what he requires us to do. 
For dear friends, a time will come. We will enter into that world that our dear God has created. And I tell you, there will be no words to express the beauty and the perfection of what you and I will see. Take heart, brothers and sisters, in this pandemic crisis, for you have a bright future in store for you. What we have here on earth is passing and fleeting. And I believe this pandemic crisis is a reminder that this is not our permanent residence. This is not the world that God has destined us to be in. There is a future world, a world wherein God is the architect and builder of that world. And that world is what you and I should be living for. And so here, finally, in verses 10 to 12, we find the call of the Father to repentance. And in verse 10, we find the call to discern and heed. Verse 10 reads, Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Now what does it mean, show discernment? Well, make, let me make it very plain to you. What it simply means is to think carefully. Think carefully. You know what the problem of 21st century people is? The problem of 21st century people is this. We are lazy thinkers. A lot of people are so distracted with so many things. We're into so much of entertainment. We try to entertain ourselves all throughout the day. So we come up with different kinds of gimmicks. We come up with different forms of entertainment trying to busy our minds, trying to kill the boredom, trying to kill the depression, the anxiety, the worry that you and I have. And that is what we do. And the problem, however, is that we are not thinking clearly. We are not giving careful thought and reflecting on things that are truly important. And I think what has happened right now in this pandemic crisis, as God has put a pause button on practically everything that we are doing, is He is causing all of us to think. To think really carefully. And that is my admonition to those of you who are listening to me right now. I would like you to think carefully. Don't just try to entertain yourself. I know there are some people who are trying to entertain themselves with computer games or with Netflix or with any other form of entertainment. But let me just tell you this. This is a time to think. This is a time to seriously ponder on things that are happening to us. Our lives are being threatened. In fact, there are a few members of ours who have been infected by COVID-19. Some of them were critical. Some of them were hospitalized. And then again, there were a few people who died as a result of COVID-19 among our members. And I'm sure that some of you know some, some friends, some neighbors, some people you know in your workplace who have either been hospitalized because of COVID-19 or some of them have passed away. These things are designed for us to think carefully about what is truly important. And that is the admonition here to these kings. Show discernment. Take warning, it says. Oh, judges of the earth. Yes, judgment is going to take place. And some people, unfortunately, are unaware that there is a future judgment. Some people are unaware that there is a hell. There is a place of torments. There is a lake of fire. Do you know that among all the preachers in the world, among all the preachers 
both in the Old Testament and New Testament, it was Jesus Christ who spoke a lot about hell more than any other preacher or more than any other writer. Jesus spoke about hell a lot of times. And why do you think he talked about hell a lot of times? Because he knows what hell is all about. God created hell for the devil and his angels. But unfortunately, people who reject him will accompany Satan as well as his fallen angels. This is not the desire of God. The Bible says in 1 Timothy that he does not desire for anyone to perish. That is why he was even asking the people to pray for rulers. Rulers who were evil at that time. The ruler was Nero. He was one of the most cruel and most oppressive rulers of all time. And yet the Bible says, pray for kings and rulers and authorities. Why do you think that was so? Because the Bible says, he does not desire for anyone to perish. If you're listening to me right now, I'd like you to know, God does not desire for you to perish. God does not desire for you to go to hell. And that's why there is this admonition to discern and heed. And then in verse 11, it says, worship and exalt in the Lord. It says, verse 11, worship the Lord with reverence. That means fear of the Lord. And again, sometimes this is the problem with our world. The world is no longer afraid to challenge God. The world is no longer approaching God with trepidation and with trembling. Yet here the Bible says, Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. This is talking about great reverence to be in awe of who God is. He is the transcendent and holy God. And we need to treat him as such because that is what he truly deserves. In verse 12, it says, worship the son who is the judge. Verse 12 reads, do homage to the son. By the way, this verse or this phrase, do homage to the son, in other translation means or is translated as kiss the son. Kiss the son. And what it means is allegiance and submission. The call of God for nations and for people is to submit themselves to God and to pledge their allegiance to the Lord. That is what I hope and pray some people will do even right now as I preach the word of God. Now, we will be celebrating the Lord's Supper later on. And we will be celebrating the salvation that He has wrought for this world. Christ died for this world. And He died so that our sins might be forgiven. Because the wages of sin is death. And God has no other choice but to send His only begotten Son. To die for our sins because his desire is to save the world. His desire is to save you. And I pray that you might accept him as Lord and Savior. Friend, you do not need to work for your salvation. There is no effort that is needed. There is no transaction that you need to accomplish to bring about your salvation. Jesus completed it for you. That is why at the cross he said, it is finished. And all you have to do is receive that salvation. Receive Christ as Lord and Savior. And you will be forgiven of your sins and you will be granted eternal life. I hope and pray that you will do that. Because the Bible says here, for his wrath may soon be kindled. God is a God of justice. And one day, his wrath is going to be poured upon your life if you reject him. And that is why if I were you, I would choose to receive him into my life. 
And finally, in verse 12, it speaks about the blessedness of repentance and submission to Christ. It says, how blessed are all who take refuge in Him. You know, the world that we live in is perilous. It is a dangerous world that we live in. We live in a world of clear and present danger. Yet, unfortunately, many people do not realize the dangers of this world. The danger of God's judgment. And my prayer to God is that you would accept Christ so that you would be blessed because all those who take refuge in the Lord are blessed not only in this life, but they are blessed in the next life. So in ending, I just like to ask you this question. Which side do you belong? Which side do you belong? Do you belong to Jesus Christ, the winning side? Or do you belong to this world, the losing side? The choice is yours. And I pray that you might make the choice of being on the winning side of things as you make Jesus the Lord and Savior of your life. Because losing and winning is determined by your attitude towards Christ. May God bless the preaching of His Word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and bless you for your word. And I know, Father, that your word will never return to you null and void, but it will accomplish the very purpose by which you have sent it for. Lord, your servant has humbly preached your word with so much trepidation and so much dependence on you, knowing, Lord, that apart from you, there is absolutely nothing that I can do. I am but a flea. I am but a glove. I am but nothing. But Lord, your word is powerful. And I pray that it might be embedded in the hearts and the minds of your people. And whatever has been achieved today, we give you back the glory, the praises and thanks. In Jesus' blessed name we pray. Amen and amen. We will now go and celebrate the Lord's Supper. Allow me to read 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, all the way to verse 26. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. I would like again to remind our viewers that the Lord's Supper is not to be treated casually nor lightly. I would also like to remind you that the Lord's Supper is not to be celebrated by everybody but only those who have made a commitment and surrender their lives to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of their lives. And the reason why this is an exclusive celebration is that it can only be celebrated by those who understand what Christ has done for them, the salvation that He has wrought. The bread symbolizes His body, which became our substitute at the cross. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. And 
you and I are the ones who are supposed to be nailed to the cross. But instead of us, instead of our bodies being nailed to the cross, it was the body of Jesus Christ that took our place. The wine symbolizes the blood of Jesus Christ. The Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And that is what the blood of Jesus Christ has accomplished. Now, how can you possibly celebrate if you do not understand what Christ has done for you? How can you celebrate when you do not understand that His body took your place at the cross and His shed blood is the one that cleanses and washes all of your sins. The symbols here represent everything that relates to our salvation. Only the body of Christ and only the blood of Jesus saves. Not our good works, not our performance, not any other person. Only Jesus and His sacrifice saves. And only those who understand that and have embraced that can celebrate it. And up to when shall we celebrate this? The Bible says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Until He comes. The Bible is teaching us the second coming. And so we are to celebrate and have communion until He comes. Because by that time, faith will now become sight. This is how we remember our invisible God. This is how we remember Jesus, who is no longer present physically here on earth, but is now seated at the right hand of the Father. But as I mentioned to you, one day, this faith will become sight. Shall we partake of the bread and the wine at this time? Thank you and bless you for your salvation. And we thank you and bless you for the opportunity to remember you, remember what you have done until the time when faith finally becomes sight. We thank you, Lord, for the glories of the inheritance that you have laid aside for us. Indeed, Lord, what amazing grace to receive such a great and wonderful inheritance. And Lord, your praise is deserved. Your worship is deserved. There is no other one that deserves glory except you. You are to be glorified and praised for all time. We thank you also for this Sunday service the praise and worship, and the Word of God. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray.